celebrating 50 years, ASCP is a membership organization of senior care pharmacists. Our mission is to promote healthy aging by empowering pharmacists with education, resources, and innovative opportunities. Learn more at ASCP.com. ASCP, experts in medication management, improving the lives of older adults. Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Senior RX Radio, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Senior RX Radio is brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, the ASCP. ASCP is devoted to optimal medication management and improved health care outcomes for older adults. Learn more at our website, ASCP.com. Welcome to Senior RX Radio, brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. We're really fortunate today to have a practice we haven't talked a lot about um, on the podcast, and that is pharmacists working in hospice. And with us today is Stephanie Nelson from Alive Hospice. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And again, my name's Stephanie Nelson. I'm the hospice clinical pharmacist at Alive Hospice. We are a hospice that does both inpatient as well as outpatient home care hospice in Middle Tennessee and provide nonprofit hospice care to our community. Excellent. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit. How did you get into this role in hospice? I think it's one that is sort of unique to senior care pharmacy. Um, you know, I certainly know a few people who work in it, but it's just not a huge industry, I guess, if you will, in terms of the numbers we often see. So how did you get into this particular role? Yeah, that's a question I often get. And I really think for a lot of my coworkers and myself, we all have personal stories of what drew us into hospice. For me, it was as a child, I grew up around my grandparents and my grandfather was very involved in hospice at the end of his life um, through a dementia diagnosis and the hospice team became a part of our family. They were a huge support to my family. So it was something that I had very close to my heart. And then during my undergraduate studies, I became a hospice volunteer at a local nonprofit hospice in Florida and really dedicated myself, loved the experience. And that volunteer experience actually led me into considering pharmacy. Uh, from there, I found a program at the University of Maryland that really focused on geriatrics and palliative care. And so that's where I went and to did my pharmacy graduate studies. Uh, through the University of Maryland is how I got involved with ASCP. And um, from there, I did residency and have been really lucky to have found my dream job as a hospice clinical pharmacist. So is this a, a position that many hospices have? Is it a required position or kind of what's sort of the industry around pharmacists and hospice? So this is not a usual position. However, other hospices do have clinical pharmacists on staff. Many pharmacists actually are more consultant in roles uh, for hospice care. Uh, there are no mandated interventions that hospice has to have from a pharmacist. However, at a live hospice, they're a nonprofit and they have seen the value that clinical pharmacy has 
in healthcare, and they have decided to invest in this role of having a full-time clinical pharmacist on staff. Previously, uh, Live Hospice utilized a consultant pharmacist who was a great mentor to me during um, starting my role here, but they then expanded the role for a full-time pharmacist on staff. Well, that's incredible. And, and it always seems like that happens in organizations where, and no matter what it is, whether it's hospice or, or a number of different organizations, once they find clinical pharmacy, you know, they, they have a hard time letting this go. That's exciting. Um, so tell us a little bit about Alive Hospice and kind of your practice site within it. Do you work is it inpatient in the community side? Is it both? What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, so... Alive Hospice is nonprofit in Central Tennessee, so we call it Middle Tennessee, um, expanding several different counties. We have usually around 400 to 450 patients, and we have two inpatient hospice units where we provide general inpatient care, respite care, as well as residential care to our hospice patients. And then majority of our patients are actually within the home setting. Um, I have a, the great opportunity of working in both locations through interdisciplinary teams um, as well as doing rounding within the inpatient units. And then I also have developed a clinical pharmacist home visit consult service where I'm able to go out to all these different counties for specific patients who need more pharmacy attention. Well, that's incredible. Um, this question is always sort of, it's funny in the world of healthcare, but I'm going to put quotations around the word normal here. So kind of tell us what your normal workday looks like. What are the, what are the typical tasks you're performing on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, you're so right. The word normal, I don't think really applies to a lot of us in clinical pharmacy. Uh, for me, it really is varied. However, there are certain tasks that I do every week and every day. Um, so within our inpatient units, I do review our patients' medication regimens, just as I would in a different inpatient, like a hospital. And then I actually round with the physician. So the physician and I will round speaking with the nurse as well as the family members um, and the patient when necessary during clinical rounds. I also then have the opportunity to work with home care. Um, a lot of times it's an intervention when they're starting on to hospice during the primary nurse visit where we'll be doing comprehensive medication reviews. I also utilize a lot for targeted medication reviews, such as transitioning over to methadone or pain management or other sorts of symptom management. Um, and then I'm also involved in some of the bigger picture type processes, uh, such as formulary management. I head up the P&T with our chief medical officer, and I also am a liaison with our contracted pharmacy in the area. That's interesting. I, I know, I mean, you mentioned a couple of times now is this interdisciplinary side of things. So, you know, I, I think obviously this probably speaks very well to what you need to do in your role with that interdisciplinary communication interactions. You know, I guess as, having said that, I'm sure that's the case, but how do you come across as a pharmacist doing that, um, being part of that team? Is it, has it been well received and it, has it evolved in any way as you've been there? 
Yeah. Um, so I was lucky enough to have the predecessor of a consultant pharmacist who worked with our hospice prior to me coming on board as a full-time clinical pharmacist. So he set up some of the uh, review processes and our IDT communications um, before I even came on board. So having that introduction of, hey, look, this is what clinical pharmacists can do to you, do for you rather, and this is how we can help as a pharmacist on the interdisciplinary team, that idea was already introduced. So it was really happy to step into that role. I think one of the challenges was now I'm full time. And now I'm going to be here much more frequently. So um, a lot of that was building trust within the team and with each of the different team members, not only with the physician, but with the nurses, social workers, chaplains, and volunteer services as well. Um, so once I was, you know, getting involved with everyone, I attended every single IDT for our whole entire hospice organization. Um, on a weekly basis for everyone. So I was going to uh, about 10 IDTs a week at some times um, and really building up those relationships, showing them this is what my med review looks like, these are the things you can reach out to me for, and really how clinical pharmacy can help. And that's really helped with building trust and building stronger communication. So, you know, I think that's happening. One of the questions that makes me think about then is, so building relationships within the healthcare community, and it sounds like that was, you know, I think something we really could speak to as pharmacists to be able to do. How about when they brought somebody on full time, how does the administration, do they have those conversations or are those conversations different with them when you talk about sort of that trust building or relationship building, if you will? Yeah, so for the administration, I think one of the nice things when they developed the role of the clinical pharmacist for um, full-time was that uh, my role is part of the medical services team. So I'm on, I'm on the same team as our physicians and nurse practitioners. So we also meet monthly as a team together along with our administration that's a part of that. So um, in that respect, we're able to all collaborate together in a different space than patient care. Um, and a lot of times we'll talk about uh, cost efficacy of medication use throughout the company and um, really showing the value of proper medication management, especially at end of life. And we'll talk, you know, about deprescribing. Maybe things can be more harmful than they are beneficial at end of life, and that can show a big difference. And so having the administrative on board in those meetings and understanding how we're working together as an IDT and how pharmacy plays a part of that has been super helpful. Uh, that's great. I think, you know, I think we often talk about the clinical aspects of pharmacy, particularly on, on this show, but there, there certainly is a business aspect to it as well. And I, I appreciate that answer because it is, I think, working with all members of the organization, whether, you know, it's sort of that business finance side and the clinical side too. So it really kind of showcases a great opportunity to work across multi-disciplines, um, not just clinical. And I, I really appreciate that. So one of the topics that I think we often face across all parts of senior care is this idea of deprescribing. Um, I, I imagine in your setting, you know, that's probably part of what you do. But I think we find this in long-term care. We find this in, in all kinds of different areas that the conversation of deprescribing, people have 
beliefs around their medications, whether it's because mm-hmm. of they read something or because a doctor prescribed them and it, it worked some time ago. How do you handle that conversation uh, of de-prescribing, whether it's with a patient or with a family member, um, you know, with these kind of long-held beliefs around this drug regimen? Yeah, that's a great question and something that happens on a daily basis here is trying to look at the person as a whole um, and whether it's the family member involved or even just the clinical staff involved, looking at what's going to be best for the patient at this time in their life. Because you're right, a lot of patients or family members have these emotional connections or beliefs about medications, whether it was told by them, you know, by a different physician, you should never stop this statin, right? Um, We hear that a lot. So one of the things I like to do is when I'm getting to know someone for the first time or getting to know them through their nurse, I like to elicit what are the fears? So if we're talking about certain medications, what are your beliefs that how it can help you, but also what are your fears? So I like to address those fears up front and um, really validate them. So for example, statin therapy, you know, like I mentioned, is one we get all the time where I, my cardiologist told me never to stop this medication. I've been on it for 10 years. Um, well, in hospice care, there's really limited benefit for those patients. So I like to hear what their fears are. And a lot of the fear is, well, I'm supposed to take it because I, I hear it's supposed to help me. And that's really it. And so you're thinking if you come off of it, then will it, will something go wrong? Will I have more symptoms? So I like to bring up clinical examples uh, for patients, also for the team. So we've worked on with statin therapy with our team members, looking at a broader picture. The number needed to treat for statin therapy is 49 patients over the span of five years to prevent one cardiovascular event. So when we're talking to our patients about this therapy, congratulate them, right? You've done such a great job of taking the statin therapy for so long. You've prevented the bad outcomes. You've done it. But at this time in your life, we're more worried about you having muscle pain and worsening pain at end of life where the statin is no longer needed and can potentially make you feel worse. I think that's an incredible lesson we can all take to our practice sites because I think the addressing the fear portion of it and then, you know, talking around some of the things that as pharmacists we can talk about is sort of that data around it too. To I find that really impactful. I'm kind of jotting down notes as I think about that here because, you know, I think that's a great way to address it. I think that's a, that's a great lesson for all of us. Um, kind of continuing the theme of hot topics, if you will. I don't need prescribing is one of them, but certainly opioids is another. And I'm sure that it's something that you have to deal with in your practice site. Um, you know, is there, you know, issues around opioids that you're often having to face or certainly drug shortages might be another one of those sort of hot topic things. Do either one of those impact you from a day-to-day issue, whether it's getting prescriptions to the right patient or, Maybe it's trying to talk about substance abuse with patients um, or family members when you're also trying to talk about pain management. How how do those impact your your kind of daily practice? Oh, for sure. I think it's hard to talk about hospice and not talk about symptom management. And one of those symptoms, especially that can worsen at end of life, is pain. And one of our main treatment modalities is opioids. So it's hard not to associate that. 
in general, yes, we've been affected by drug shortages. I know a lot of us have in the past, you know, couple years. Um, but I do want to address this issue of the opioid um, epidemic, right? So one of the things we run into is our older women, older men who don't have necessarily any experience with addiction in their past. They're now on hospice, usually with cancer and having significant pain, but they have this fear of opioid addiction because of the opioid epidemic. So there's a lot of counseling that can sometimes take to talk to our patients about, you know, what is addiction versus what is opioid tolerance and what is using an opioid for pain management look like, especially at end of life. So we really sit down, same idea with the deprescribing, you know, trying to address what is your fear with going in to potentially trying an opioid for pain management if it's needed and addressing those fears, talking about the difference between addiction and really the body's tolerance to an opioid as you're getting more successful pain management. So that's something that we run into quite a bit. And I've actually done home visits for people um, who's either family members or who them themselves are having trouble uh, really accepting how can I better manage my pain and being very resistant to sometimes opioids because of this opioid epidemic. Yeah, has that changed much in your practice? I mean, has I know opioids are certainly getting a lot more attention as of recent last couple of years. Has the views changed in, by the amount of coverage that it gets now, do you think? Um, I would say um, there hasn't necessarily been a large changes in how we treat because we are primarily treating for end-of-life pain, um, which is so a lot of the legislation that gets put out hospice um, in most cases is not is considered basically an exemption. So, for example, Tennessee recently, in starting January uh, 2019, has put out much more strict regulations around opioid supplies. So, in general, there's a three-day limit for opioid prescriptions if they don't meet any of the requirements. So, if you were to go to the ER, you'd only get a three-day opioid prescription, and that's it. For us, hospice is exempt. Um, so we need to follow the exemption within our opioid regulations. Part of that is making sure um, we have the right information on a prescription. But I think that also brings up the good point of our patients, because of their exempt, there is this risk of potential diversion since there is a much more limited supply of opioid in the community. So it's something that as a team we are well aware of and on all alert for, and we do utilize proper uh, proper safety guards when we are concerned for diversion. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that has been a, a big impact on a lot of our practices, especially for those, you know, you know, like you and myself who like work in the long-term care communities, you know, there's just, it, it's got to be safeguards around it. So I'm, I'm glad that, you know, patients, I think we always fear to some level that our patients getting what they need. And so I'm glad that, you know, things like having exemptions for hospice are in place. Um, that's, that's a really impactful. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the last things we've been on, Stephanie, is sort of the emotional aspects of what you deal with. I know in long-term care, geriatric care, I think we're obviously connected to and have some of that emotional piece to what our practice looks like. But I think certainly for you, I think it probably is even a more intensified role when it talks about the, sort of the emotional aspects. How do you 
sort of deal with having that sort of emotional connection to, to patients who are obviously at the end of life? This is a great question, and I think, you know, all of us are going to experience death in one form or another in our lifetime, and so emotional care for yourself is really important. One of the things I really appreciate that we do at Alive is during each of our RDT meetings, we start with bereavements first, and bereavements is a time where everyone on the team gets to discuss their emotions and their thoughts about the people who have impacted our lives as patients in a very safe space. So it's, it's definitely a part of the emotional care for the entire team and also helps build bonds and really helps build those relationships and discuss how these people impacted us in so many different ways and we can talk through that and have emotional support from our colleagues. So that's one of the biggest ways I find very helpful with the emotional aspect. And then, of course, also just self-care. And one of the things I like to do is spending time with my friends and family, making sure I have that time. Working in hospice is such a sacred space, um, and it's something that I try not to take for granted. And because I'm working with people who are maybe in the worst time of their life, dealing with dying family members, it also helps me give a greater respect to my loved ones in my life um, and really helps keep the space of hospice sacred and also helps me honor my own relationships. That's incredible, Stephanie. I, I, yeah, I think just the idea of, the idea of starting meetings with bereavement, I mean, wow, that's, that's incredible. I think if how much impact that would have if we, you know, were able to incorporate that same idea into you know, maybe other aspects of practices that pharmacists are doing because, mm. you know, certainly in senior care, we do deal with that. So I thank you for that perspective. That's incredible. Well, Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This is an incredible practice space and I, I know we just scratched the surface of this. I could probably ask you a thousand more questions about your work, but I appreciate you sharing it um, with the podcast today. Thank you so much, Justin. And I just have to say, it's been so wonderful being involved in ASCP for so many years as a student and then a resident and now as a practicing professional. Um, I really want to thank ASCP too and for this opportunity. Yeah, ASCP continues to be an incredible organization and I, I thank you for saying that as well. And I, I echo the same sentiments. So Senior Rx Radio Podcast brought to you by the American Society Consultant Pharmacists. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Senior Rx Radio. Be sure to share this podcast with your fellow consultant pharmacists and pharmacy associates to learn more about better outcomes for older adult patients. Join us on the web at ASCP.com.